Uh, we will be reading from Matthew. I mean, sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, I want to go with Matthew. <laughs> from Luke 10, 25 to 37. <laughs> and in the Blue Bible, it's on page uh, 564. And this is so high, I'm going to have to bring it down here to my height. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put things to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to them, What is written in the law? How do you, re how do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell upon among the robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him and passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound him up, bound his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then him, he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you And when I, when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thank you, ladies. So grateful. Before we, uh, I'm Brandon, by the way. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if you're new, we're glad you're with us. Um, before we move on, I do want to just say a word about this uh, vocational collective. This is our second one uh, that we started in the last year. And um, we're so thankful for all of you that are in education. And so before we just kind of gloss over that, uh, my mom is a teacher and uh, is, uh, attends here at Soma, is not here this week. But she's basically given her life as an adult <clears throat> to educating both in the private and public sectors of Louisville, Kentucky, where I grew up. And so uh, I know the burden uh, and uh, the, the daily challenges and anxieties that it is to be in the educational, see how we sync that up right as I start talking, everything lowers. <laughs> We're going to release some doves in just a moment. <laughs> Trying to create some ambiance here. Uh, but I just, want, I, I just want you to know if you're in the educational system um, that we see you and we're so thankful for you. Um, you don't get a lot of attaboys and attagirls uh, in the educational system. It is just, if we're honest, sometimes a beatdown right? Monday to Friday, a beatdown, and then you just melt into the weekend and try to survive and try to figure out how you're going to get ramped back up for Monday. Um, and so I want to just take a moment, if you're in that system in any form or fashion, uh, some of us are live, some of us are upstairs, would you just lift up your hand so we could just see you? Um, private, public, homeschool, yeah. Thank you guys. Let's give them a round of applause and just thank God for... For you, if you think, um, study after study shows that the most impactful people in our lives are not uh, movie stars in Hollywood, they're not political candidates, certainly, um, but they're teachers, they're coaches, they're normal, everyday people who impact our lives and make a difference in our lives. And so I just want to encourage you, uh, we see you, we know you, we love you, we're thankful for the work that you do in the city, and your work matters to God right? What you do every week matters to God, and it matters to us. Uh, so that's our second. So we've started also, if you're in the medical field, we have a medical collective for those who are in healthcare. Um, so I would ask John to raise his hand here, but he's upstairs. So John, you can raise your hand on video, uh, and everybody can uh, give you an imaginary high five. But John and Dan Seitz are doctors uh, and, and nurses, and they've started a, a one in the medical field as well. 
And so some of you are like, why are we doing this? And we're not doing a marketing collect. Okay, great. Somebody start a marketing collect. Like, these are just opportunities to say, hey, we have seven or eight major channels or domains of culture in our city where we'd like to see God's kingdom come and his will be done uh, in our city as it is in heaven. And so let this be hopefully an impetus or an encouragement to you that if you, uh, you want that, hear that as an invitation, not like you know, people will come up to us from time to time and be like, you should do this, or we should do this, right? We should start this initiative. And there's, you know, there's lots of we's. It's like when your, your spouse will sometimes say, we should do something. There's like the me, we, um, like I should do this. Then there's the you, we, like I'm saying we, but I mean you. Uh, and then there's we, we, like we should do this, right? Sounds kind of weird to say that. Uh, oftentimes, though, what you mean is you, we, you should do this. And we want to say, no, you are the church. You are the people of God. You should. If, if that's a burden that you have, consider that an invitation. And we would love to just resource you to be able to do something like that. That is our vision, that people would come together and that the synergy and the energy. Uh, I spent Friday at um, EdgeX. Uh, Dave Neff, who I don't think is in this service, a member of our church, uh, was founding kind of CEO of um, Edge Mentoring, intergenerational, whole person uh, mentor organization here in the city. It's now scaled uh, all over the country. And just to be in that room and experience 3,000 uh, folks getting together, many of them followers of Jesus, in different spaces and different domains of culture, dreaming about what it could look like for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done. And just encouraging each other. It was so powerful as a pastor to sit in this room and, and really it just made me feel really small. I mean, I usually feel small because I am short, but it just made me like psychologically, I was reminded uh, being in a room like that, like how few people uh, I really have the ability to influence. But like those of you who are out in neighborhoods, having jobs and raising families and on campus, like the potential of God to use you to influence the city is astounding. And so I thank God for that. And uh, that's what we want to be about as a church. Now, having said that, uh, we're going to be teaching for a little bit here from uh, this story that's probably one of the more famous stories in the Bible. If you grew up in church, you definitely heard uh, the Good Samaritan uh, told. And I want to put a little bit of a spin on it. Not, not, there's, any, there's no new information here. Uh, in terms of the Good Samaritan. I'm not looking to innovate uh, or iterate or, uh, you know, improve upon what Jesus told here, but to maybe spin it a little bit of a different direction and look at it through uh, different lenses. So if you've been here the last couple weeks, we've been uh, in the middle of this vision series um, on spiritual formation and discipleship. What does it mean to to really follow Jesus um, in the time and the place in which we live? And we, we've defined spiritual formation as Uh, learning to uh, practice the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. So we spent the last couple weeks unpacking that. We have a slide that kind of unpacks what we mean when we say practicing the way of Jesus. Uh, And I actually omitted a word in there, together uh, for the life of the world. If you go to that next slide, John, this is what it means to practice the way of Jesus. To practice the way of Jesus is to be with Jesus, right? We're learning to be with Jesus and to see... uh, Jesus as a person, to see God as a person that we're relating to, to spend time with him and to have a personal relationship with God, right? That's the foundation for everything. To become like him, right? To, to, to have our character so permeated and possessed by Jesus that we start to disrupt those patterns that are opposed to the kingdom of God and we start to become like him. Uh, that's an inside-out work of God that he's doing in us, to become like Jesus. And then finally, to do what he did. And so we're going to be spending a lot of time talking through this practically. We're just kind of at a high level now talking about kind of the why and the what, and we'll get into the how. But these would be things like being with Jesus would be things like prayer and fasting and, and Sabbath and kind of the traditional, what you call the spiritual disciplines, which we'll talk quite a bit about today. Uh, becoming like Jesus, we talk about owning our story and seeing how we've been shaped to not be like Jesus uh, and disrupting that so that we can become like him. And, uh, and that's also living into our calling, things of that nature. And then doing what he did, uh, James, uh, Deacon James here gave us a great message on that last week in terms of things like simplicity and generosity and justice and making disciples. And we saw that from the beginning of Luke chapter 10. So that's what we've been talking about for uh, the last couple weeks. And today, I want us to see um, the back half of that statement. So we've talked about practicing the way of Jesus. We'll cover together here in just a few weeks. But I want to take the second half of that statement, practicing the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. And I want to introduce what I think might, for some of us, be a little bit of a paradigm shift. 
It's really, I think, a recovery of the ancient way. But for some of us in our modern context, this would be a paradigm shift for the way that we think about spiritual formation. Because we oftentimes don't think about spiritual formation as it's related to the life of the world. We often just think of it as it's related to us. And what Jesus is doing here is bringing us into attention, right? If you're familiar with polarity thinking, right? Uh, there, there are these realities in life that are interdependent, things that you don't fix, you just kind of hold together, right? And that's what Jesus is doing. He's inviting us into the tension of eternal life, right? Through the story of the Good Samaritan. So just to give you a little bit of context here about what's happening, um, to set this up, because I know many of us are not familiar with Jewish culture. So we have this lawyer here, verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Right? Do this and you'll live. So what you have here is a lawyer, right? This is a religious scholar, not a civil lawyer, but a, a, essentially a scriptural lawyer who's an expert in uh, the Hebrew scriptures, right? You have essentially like, this would be like a seminary professor, a religious scholar, somebody who's been trained and spent lots of time pouring over the 700 plus laws uh, in, in the Mosaic law and then in the rabbinical law, the teacher's laws of that day. And it says that he's putting Jesus to the test. So he's not here really wanting to be a disciple. He is kind of the paradigm of what you just might call like a, just a religious person, right? Coming to God to question God, to doubt God, not to learn from God, but just to be a skeptic, right? So this is a hardcore, cynical kid who grew up in the religious Midwest, right? Coming to Jesus, asking him, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and he was it, literally the word that he's trying to, to trap him. And the reason he's doing that is because he knew that Jesus had a reputation. They're trying to trap Jesus. They're ultimately trying to get Jesus killed, uh, but they want to do it in a way where they don't have to take the blame. And so he's, they're constantly setting Jesus up with these questions, trying to get him to out himself because they knew that he welcomed sinners. Jesus spent a lot of time with people who the religious leaders stayed away from. They avoided at all costs, right? He spent time with tax collectors, right? He spent time with prostitutes and pimps. He spent time with the worst of the worst, the dregs of society in that day, the lawbreakers. And so I think here the, the religious scholar's point is to ask Jesus, what does it look like when you hear the word eternal life in the book of Luke? Um, it just means the kingdom of God, right? The reign and the rule of God, the anticipated uh, day that every, every Jew would have been looking forward to uh, from the earliest of childhood, right? The day when God returns to establish his kingdom. What must I do to inherit real life? And I think he was hoping that Jesus would say, ah, nothing, you know? Like, just you, you be you. You do you, right? That's kind of like how they were, he was hoping that Jesus would say something that was kind of counter to the, the Old Testament law so they could say, ah, gotcha. Now, here's the crazy thing about trying to trap Jesus. Never try to trap Jesus, right? Because he never answers a question with an answer, right? He answers a question with a question. And you know you're in dangerous territory when you're talking to somebody and you ask them a question and they ask you a question back, right? Like, you ever been in that situation where, I don't know if you're married and like, husbands, just a little like warning here. Uh, you ask your wife, honey, what can I do to be the best husband in the world? And they, they, they look back at you with that look, right? That look and they're like, I don't know, you tell me. Now, just a warning, that's an opportunity for you as a husband to be quiet and slowly back away, right? Slowly back away and start to pray, okay? Because whatever you say, it's going to be wrong, right? Or in this case, whatever you say is going to be flipped and used against you. So Jesus says, uh, he says, what about us to do to inherit eternal life? He says, I don't know. How do you read it, right? How, do you, how would you summarize the law? And he looks back over those six or 700 uh, some odd laws, and he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. And I have to think, just, I don't know if Jesus is laughing here. I, I don't know if he's smiling with some kind of irony or sarcasm. 
he literally responds, this is a terrifying statement. He says, you've answered correctly, right? Like, what must I do to be a great husband, right? Listen to you, right? Make you my greatest priority, love you well. And then your wife looks back at you and she says, exactly. Do that and you will live. (laughs) (laughs) And that's exactly what Jesus says. Yeah, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbors yourself. Do those things and you will live. And immediately, I mean, just like you, right? Like just like you in that moment, he begins to feel the weight of Jesus' statement, the tension that he's been drawn into. Love God with all of your being, right? Make God the sole motivation for why you live your life. Make God the thing at the center of your consciousness, the organizing principle of your day. From the time you wake up to the time your head hits the pillow at night, love God with all of your being, not just your intellect, not just your competency, with your heart, right? Fully and freely from your heart. Like you want to want God, not like I'm compelled to because I live in Indianapolis because I'm surrounded by Christians, because I I run a Christian business, because I have to go to church on Sundays. Love God with your soul, with your body, with your mind, with your imagination. And while you're doing that, also love your neighbors yourself. I mean, he's feeling the vice grips of Jesus's just little simple statement, do this and you'll live. And he does what all of us would do in the face of that tension, right? This is the tension of eternal life. Love God and love your neighbors yourself. Love God with all that you are and put your neighbor's welfare at the same level as you would put your own. Love your neighbor, right? Those around you, like weep with them as they weep. All the energy you would put into mourning over your own life, put that into broken people. Like, celebrate with them as you would celebrate as if you got the promotion when they get the promotion that you wanted. Bless you. That's the tension. And he, and he, he, he invites us to see this tension, Jesus, to see this tension as the very heart of the kingdom of God. And, and this should be a reminder to us that formation is ultimately about love. Formation is ultimately about love. Love God and love your neighbor. It's about expanding whatever we talk about your spiritual formation and discipleship. This isn't just an academic exercise. This isn't just some, you know, leadership operating system that we're installing here so that we can then roll out programs and structures around spiritual formation and high-five each other that we filled out a spiritual formation plan and now we're good. He says, no, it's ultimately about love. It's about expanding your capacity to receive love, because let's be honest, we kind of stink at receiving love. We're not very good at receiving love. Like somebody looks you in the face and says, you know, especially dudes, like, I love you, man. And it just gets awkward, right? It gets awkward quickly. Somebody looks you in the face and affirms you. I see you. I love you. I am for, I mean, it's a weird space. We have a hard time receiving love, especially unmerited love, unconditional love, agape love that Jessica Kim talked about Friday expanding our capacity to receive love. So if you think of your, your, your kind of your heart and your soul as a container, it's like, how do we make the container larger? Because our containers, just like the Grinch, are like three sizes too small. Okay, I have four kids. This is all I think about. But how do we expand that container so that we can not just receive it, but give it to other people, to give it to those around us? Because it's not only hard to receive it, it's really hard to give it. It's really hard to give it, especially to those who are closest to us. That's the goal of formation. And so feeling that weight and knowing his own failures, he asked the question that all of us are probably always asking, even if we're not saying it out loud. Who is my neighbor exactly, Jesus? Right? Typical attorney, right? I want to know specifically with all the footnotes, right? And I, you know, I want to know exactly who is my neighbor. This is the heart of what I would call disintegrated formation, right? Taking the tension and snapping the tension, disintegrating the tension of formation, which is love God and love your neighbor, seeking to get out of that. And so Jesus tells him a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. 
Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed on by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound, him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, in order to understand the story, you have to understand the history of Jewish and Samaritan people, right? Um, Jewish people and Samaritan people hated one another. The Samaritans were essentially half-breeds, right? They were half-Jewish. A good Jew would wake up in the morning and say, God, thank you for not making me a Samaritan or a woman, right? Uh, they would literally pray. We have, we have teachings from ancient rabbis praying against the forgiveness of the Samaritans. The Samaritans, essentially when northern Israel was conquered centuries before, uh, the Samaritans married their captors and they had children. So now imagine being surrounded by people, those who are your oppressors, have, get married to your brothers and sisters and have children. If you're a Harry Potter fan, they were mudbloods. And there was serious racial tension. So Jesus takes the hero of the story and makes him a Samaritan. Ugh. And this, he, he tells this story while he himself is on this road down to, from Jerusalem to Jericho. So he's using a familiar Im imagery here. He's using familiar imagery. This road from Jerusalem down to Jericho was literally like, that's not a metaphor, like literally went down 3,000 feet from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was a 17-mile road that was traveled very frequently by, by the majority of Jewish people, but it was a very dangerous stretch of road. There were little caves and, and rocky crags along the way where robbers would often hide out, and they would, um, they would rob people. And so um, just to, to kind of see this in the context, because we're, our first impulse is to dismiss the, fair, to dismiss the religious leaders, the, the Levite and the priest, without understanding the full context. Like, how could you? How could you be so heartless? I would never do that. Uh, the reality is, um, there's a lot of reasons why the Levites, Levite and the priest wouldn't have stopped, right? Um, they had probably just spent, even though this is a story, if you were a priest or a Levite, and you were coming from Jerusalem to Jericho, you'd be, spent just two weeks going through the purification rites to prepare to perform your priestly duties, right? You would go up to Jerusalem, uh, there was all kinds of procedures and protocols, you know, to get cleansed, and then you would go out from there to Jerusalem and then out to minister to people. And so to stop and to go close, to get within six feet of somebody in this condition could actually disqualify you from being able to perform your priestly duties. Then you had to go back up to Jerusalem again for another two weeks. So it was a very costly and sacrificial thing because there was a real concern for purity and holiness on the part of the priests. And so before we just like get down on them, just like us, they had lots of reasons to not be bothered with people who were in need because it was costly. And, and I want us to just kind of uh, stop for a second and, and, and listen to this question. Because oftentimes... Um, when our formation is not integrated, when it's not whole, when it's not aligned, we're, we ask the wrong questions, right? Religious people often ask the wrong questions. He asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And essentially what he's asking there is, how can I love myself, right? How can I love myself? I want to make sure that I narrow that command so that it's doable, right? Because being a religious leader was all about performance. It was all about keeping the laws and doing the right things. And so this question here, who is my neighbor, I think he's hoping Jesus will say, your Jewish brothers and sisters, surely not the Samaritan, right? And then he can say, oh, yeah, yeah, I do that. I do that. I'm a priest. Right? Like, again, priests are like, you know, the top dogs in kind of like the priest culture. They're varsity. Uh, Levites are like JV. Um, they didn't have quite the status or the economics that the, uh, the priest would. They couldn't perform all the duties of a priest. It's likely as they were coming down the hill from Jerusalem to Jericho, they even saw the robbery take place. Right in full vision of everybody. 
And yet his question is, how, who is my neighbor? How can I love myself? How can I set this up and answer Jesus in such a way that I'll be commended? We often do that. We ask the wrong question. We also make false assumptions. There's a false assumption that is kind of implicit in the story that's a part and parcel of a disintegrated formation paradigm. The false assumption is that religious systems inevitably produce a life of loving God and loving other people. That if I grew up in church and I've, I've said the liturgy my whole life, I've said the prayers, I, I went to some kind of vacation Bible school, I, I went through confirmation class, I was sprinkled as an infant, uh, you know, like I, I go to confession, that somehow that religious system inevitably will produce a life of loving God and loving other people, that if I've been involved in church, then I'm going to become the kind of person who wouldn't do what the priest and Levite did here. I want to kind of deconstruct that false assumption. Matter of fact, religious systems op- often produce the opposite of a life of loving God and loving other people. I mean, think about the religious leadership that Jesus is always critiquing throughout the Gospels. I mean, especially the priests and the Levites. I mean, to be a priest, right? To be at that level, to be a Pharisee. I mean, these are not like JV-level Christians. I mean, these are like serious religious people. You have to go through years of extensive training, extensive study. I mean, these people prayed multiple, way more than we do, right? Like multiple times a day. They fasted all the time. They had to memorize. I mean, they had the entire Torah at least memorized. Most of the chief rabbis had the entire Hebrew scriptures memorized. These were the best, I mean, these are the delta force of, like, you know, religious people. But here's what's fascinating. They spent all of that time engaging in spiritual disciplines. And yet, both the priest and the Levite saw that's a, that is a key word, circle that in the passage. You see that at least three times here. Saw, saw, saw. The optics were there. There was no heart with it. Right? Like they saw, but, but whatever was happening in their formation paradigm in that religious system never touched the heart. It never touched the heart in such a way that it moved them towards compassion, towards a life of sacrifice and actually not just seeing, but feeling and then doing what God desires. Why? Like, what was it that was broken in that system? What's, what, what, what is it that keeps us from doing what we know we should otherwise do, even though we're raised and we know what the right thing to do is, right? We know when we walk by that person on the street, we know uh, when there's a, a vulnerable child in our space, like, we know um, the right thing to do but we often don't. What is it that holds us back? I mean, um, probably some of it, and Jesus doesn't say, so we're just speculating here, but fear, right? Fear. Martin Luther King Jr. in his uh, famous uh, sermon on this passage says, there had to be something rising up from within them that said, what if they're still around? What if the robbers are still around? What if I engage them and they hurt me too? There's, there's fear. Busyness, maybe. Right? The priest and the Levite had good stuff to do in Jesus' name, God's name. I've got to get down to minister to other people. And so we don't often see, we don't often feel because we're too busy. Right? And then just contempt, which is really just another face of fear. Right? Hatred. Samaritan people. All of these things. There was something broken, but the assumption that religious systems inevitably produce a life of loving God and loving other people is wrong. It's a false assumption. And the Bible's always calling it out. The prophetic tradition, as a matter of fact, in the Old Testament and of which Jesus was a part, was always calling out this faulty assumption. Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, where, where like so-called spiritual disciplines can actually become what I'll call the selfish disciplines, right? They reinforce a life of self-love, not love of God and love of other people. Isaiah 58, one of the more famous passages, right? You can see that here. John, do we have that um, text throw, to throw up there, Isaiah 58? Um, I'll just, I'll read it to you if we don't. Isaiah 58, 1 through 5. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. 
Yet they seek me daily, and they delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure, and you oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight, and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? It's obviously not on the screen, so a little technical difficulty. What he's saying is, like, notice all the things he calls sins. You're seeking after me. You're delighting in fasting and praying and humbling yourself. But you're not doing justice. You're not loving your neighbor as yourself. It's not enough just to do religious acts if it's not united with a desire to love our neighbors ourselves. Matthew 23, we see a similar indictment on the Pharisees. Jesus said to the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. What are the weightier matters of the law? Justice, mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing Spiritual disciplines can become selfish disciplines. What's supposed to unleash a life of love in the kingdom of God can actually unleash sons of hell, he says. People who actually do the opposite and end up spreading hate and injustice and cruelty and violence. And yet, we're blind to it. So think about that. Think about all the spiritual disciplines, right? Think about things like prayer and think about fasting and Sabbath and scripture and, and, and owning our story. These can all be good things, but they can also be used selfishly, not to love God and love our neighbors, but to make us feel good about ourselves. Bob Briner says this, do you honestly believe that our big churches and highly visible Christian leaders have brought about a movement that's taken seriously in our country? We feel we're making a difference because we are so important to ourselves. We have created a phenomenal subculture within our own media, entertainment, educational, educational system, and political hierarchy so that we have the sense that we're doing a lot. But what we've really done is create a ghetto that's easily dismissed by the rest of society. The Christian publishing industry is a $1.2 billion industry. We've, I mean, that's, that's bigger than the top 16 lowest GDPs for the poorest countries in the world, just the evangelical publishing industry. We've had a proliferation of resources and discipleship classes and trainings. I mean, we're the most educated Christian generation, generational cohort in the history of Christianity, and yet... We still have so much injustice. We still have so much not loving our neighbor as ourselves. We are barely skimming the surface of the massive social problems. Not only, faith, let's forget about the world. Let's just talk about Indy. Let's talk about the foster care system. Let's talk about immigrants and refugees. Let's just talk about a broken educational system, right, that we all know and live in, and some of us are the product of. We are not even scratching the surface, and yet we have a billion-dollar industry. If you want to learn more about this, uh, I wish I had our screens. I think they're broken. Um, but, uh, man, I have a, there's a great documentary. I have pictures and I was going to show you. Uh, come back for the second service. Maybe we'll have it fixed. Uh, but there's a great documentary that we take all of our elders through as part of their training um, called Addicts, the School That Opened a City. 
And it, and it chronicles kind of the, uh, the, it's really about Crispus Attucks High School, which was opened in 1927 as the first segregated high school in Indianapolis. We went from a few uh, colored students attending uh, Shortridge High School and a few others to opening the first all-black high school in 1927. Uh, this became a school that literally trained up a generation of some of the best and brightest scientists, medical folks, government officials in, in history, right? Like Oscar Robertson came out of here. Uh, it was open for about 40 years, closed down in the 1960s. But the film is really about the failure of uh, kind of uh, race relations in Indianapolis. And it kind of tracks the growth and development of addicts with some of the social problems that we face. Um, we see, uh, you know, the Klan, it all featured all throughout the beginning of the film, right? And estimates tell us from history, religious demographers and sociologists tell us there are about three or 400,000 Klan members here in Indianapolis in the uh, early to mid-century. Their headquarters at one point were on the south side of Indianapolis. They had marches at the fairgrounds where over 50,000 KKK members would march through our community unobstructed and cheered. Their goal was to have a million by mid-century. And they ran a lot of the institutions in the city of Indianapolis. They, they systematically harassed and pressed down African Americans in our city, relocating them to an area of the city on the near west side where IUPUI's campus is right now called the Bottoms. Some of the most horrendous conditions known to humans, because I have pictures of them uh, if we had our slideshow, no, no guilt or shame back there. But you could see the deplorable conditions and, and how people made intentional choices to segregate off these folks and cut them off from the goods of society. And the question I just asked myself over and over again is, where was the church? Where was the church? In, 1920, in the 1920s, Indianapolis was called the city of churches. There were more churches being started than people moving to the city. Where was the church? In the mid-20th century, I know where the church went, outside the city. In the mid-20th century, the majority of particularly white middle-class churches left the city of Indianapolis. Suburbanization kicked in. Hamilton County and other surrounding counties started to blow up. The church literally evacuated the city. Now that is a hard truth to own. And I'm not sitting here pointing the fingers at parents or grandparents or other people that came before me. I wouldn't even hear. And many of you weren't even alive. But to say that religious systems always produce a life of love, that it's just some automatic thing that happens and that we don't have blind spots, and don't think that we're any different. Our kids and our grandkids will be telling this story about us one day. Can you believe our parents missed it here? Can you believe our grandparents were overseeing this city? Who was at the wheel, right? Like, did everybody, you know, everybody just, like, checked out? This is our story. We have opportunities. What do we do with those opportunities? Who's my neighbor? Jesus flips the question. We'll go to some hopeful stuff and close out here. Uh, this is heavy. He flips the question from who is my neighbor to who proved to be a neighbor? Who proved to be a neighbor. This is a vision for integrated formation. And he tells the story, and he, and he says, here's the good Samaritan, the one who, and it's interesting, notice the guy here, the religious leader, can't even name his name. Who proved to be the neighbor? And he says, the man, the, the man who did this. He won't even say his name or his race. Hates him that much. What does the good Samaritan show us about what it means to be a good neighbor, right? We see three simple things. He sees, right? He sees with God's eyes, he doesn't see a disruption. He doesn't see a nuisance. He doesn't just see a race. He doesn't see a class. He just sees an image bearer who needs help. Do we see these? What are our optics? Distraction or divine opportunity? We have those every single day. He feels, right? He doesn't just see. It connects to his heart. He feels compassion. I love that word compassion. It's the word splognitomai. If you want to impress somebody with Greek this week, I just love that word. It literally means from the bowels, from the guts. He was moved with compassion at the core of who he was. Do I feel what God feels? Do I see what God sees? And then he just does something about it. He moves towards, it says. He binds, he moves. Like The point is he gets out and he acts on it. He shows hospitality, right? He, uh, he advocates for this man's needs. Anything left on the tab, I'll take care of it. Don't kick him out, don't have him arrested. He offers holistic, comprehensive care. He doesn't just preach the gospel at him. 
he actually offers wraparound human services to this man. He binds up his wounds. He brings oil. It's medicinal, right? He puts him up in a hotel, takes care of his physical and social and emotional and spiritual needs. He takes the risk and puts it on himself, and he loves this man back to life. What's interesting here is the Samaritan is likely, and this is not a part of the story that's often told, a wealthy merchant. Like nobody in that day would have just had oil and, and, and an animal just sitting around, you know, as they're walking from, on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was likely a very wealthy patron, business owner. And Jesus says, you've asked the wrong question. It's not who is my neighbor. It's what in the world is it going to take for me to become the kind of person who actually loves my neighbor? That's the question we should be asking ourselves. What's broken that's producing people who don't love their neighbors? And then what kind of, what kind of formation, integrated formation is needed to become the kind of people who love our neighbors as ourselves? How do I become this kind of neighbor, Jesus says? And particularly the way we can measure this is how we're moving towards those who are most different from us. Politically, religiously, socio socioeconomically, how are we moving towards those folks? So I want to just close with this question related back to formation. How could spiritual practices help shape us into these kinds of people? How could practices help shape us into these kind of people? How does our practice of uh, spiritual formation, being with Jesus, becoming like him, doing what he did, impact how we see, how we feel, and what we do with our lives? Because again, the Samaritan had every reason that you have, because the majority of us in this room are historically wealthier and more affluent and more privileged than the most people in the history of the world, Right? He had every reason in the world to not engage and to walk on by like the priest and the Levite. Bernard of Clairvaux said, to see a man humble under prosperity is the greatest rarity in the world. So there's, a, there's an author named Cal Bennett, and he has a great book on spiritual disciplines. And I wish I had this chart I could show you, but he has a chart comparing kind of the way we typically look at spiritual formation and disciplines with the way that Jesus looked at spiritual formations and the Bible looked at spiritual formation and spiritual disciplines. And he said, we tend to think of spiritual disciplines as exercises in personal growth, right? I want to feel close to God. I want to grow in my walk with God. And we talk about it in very individualistic terms. But he says, if you look at the Bible in the language of the Bible, formation and disciplines are always tied to the well-being of our community, we are in solidarity with those around us, and the disciplines are given not just to enhance our personal well-being with God, but to lift up our community. And so he says the challenge of formation is not, I've got to enter into this like bizarre, like, you know, dystopian future and do all these weird things now because I'm a Christian. He says, no, how do I take the everyday things that I already do and do them for God and for my neighbor? And he takes the spiritual disciplines and he says, like, think about this. Why do we engage in the practice of simplicity, simple living as Christians? It's not just so we can say, you know, like, hey, I'm like, you know, non-GMO and I'm living with like corporate capitalistic consciousness, you know, like, it's like trendy to kind of be that kind of person right now. Virtue signaling, that's what we call it. And he says, no, simplicity is not for your well-being. Simplicity renews the way that you own possessions so that you can steward them and share them with your neighbor. Meditation renews your mind. And as you meditate, you're not just in some kind of weird yoga position, emptying your mind, you know, thinking groovy thoughts. He says, it ought to renew the way that we think about our neighbor. How many of us spend conscious time each week in our prayer lives, praying the Lord's Prayer with Jesus, God, give us our daily bread. Notice it's always plural in the Lord's Prayer. So as I think about the bread that I need, I'm also thinking about the bread that my neighbor needs or doesn't have access to. Fasting, he says, renews feasting. To abstain is not just a weight loss program. It's not to get in shape, right? It's to renew the way that we feast and who we feast with and to free up resources to feast with those who are not currently around our table. Solitude renews socializing. Silence renews our conversation. Service renews work. Rest 
I mean, think about rest. If you're a business owner, if you don't rest, guess who else is not resting? Your workers, your employees, your direct reports, your board. Man, it's convicting. I love the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German pastor in the rise of the Third Reich. Many of us are familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer's story. But we maybe don't know the, the whole story. He was looking around at the church in Germany, the official state church, and he was sickened by the ways that they were capitulating to power, the ways that they were capitulating to nationalism, the ways that they were capitulating to Nazism. They had a deal with the Nazis, and basically Dietrich Bonhoeffer broke away with some other men and women, and they formed what they called the Confessing Church. And the Confessing Church was a countercultural movement to subvert what he saw as the sickening and the corruption of the church in Germany. And so they were outlawed in Germany, right? They weren't allowed to really assemble. They weren't allowed to receive funds. It was illegal to even mention the names of anybody in the confessing church. You would be locked up for that in Nazi Germany. And so they started this movement, and he started it really the kind of the core of it was the seminary that he started in this little town called Finkenwall. Charles Marsh has a great book called Strange Glory. You can read about this. But it was, it was about 20 or 30 men that he trained. It was like a seminary, a boot camp for people who were really serious about following Jesus. And lots of people thought he was crazy, right? Like crazy. Like especially one of his friends said, man, this just seems a little over the top. I mean, yeah, Hitler's kind of whatever, but this seems a little over the top. And so they go to, he comes down to visit him in Finkenwald. And he says, like, is this really necessary? Like, do we really need to do this? Come on back to the church. The story's told by Marsh that Bonhoeffer takes him in a boat and go across the channel. And they go to the top of this little hill. And on the other side of this little hill, there's a Nazi outpost, a Nazi installation off in the distance. And you can see from the top of this hill the Nazis marching and practicing and doing what they do and instilling and brainwashing people in a way of hatred and violence and contempt and ethnocentrism. And Bonhoeffer looks at his friend, who I think is a reporter, and he says, this over here, what's happening at Finkwall, has to be stronger than that. This way of love has to so permeate us that it's stronger than all the hatred, the injustice, and the cruelty over here if we're going to see the kingdom of God really break out. Wow. This must be stronger than that. So how do we apply this to our lives? Again, let's go back to love. Love experienced. This has to be stronger than that. It becomes love extended, right? Everything God does in our lives, we are blessed to be a blessing, right? We are blessed. And I'm not talking about hashtag blessed. I'm talking about truly blessed to be a blessing, to become containers who pour themselves out as we are receiving the love of God, as God is healing us from the wounds of our past, it's not about self-discovery. It's about the kind of transformation that makes me capable of loving people and getting my eyes off myself. You see the difference between what we often call like a therapeutic culture and a real gospel movement? It's not about me just healing the wounds of my past. It's about being able to look forward and love people well, right? It's about praying. It's about fasting. It's about solitude and Sabbath and all these practices with a vision from whatever I see, receive from God, I extend to other people. I wake up in the morning and I think, God, what can I be grateful for today? And how can I share that with the people that you're going to bring into my sphere today, right? With my coworkers, with my spouse, with roommates on my campus on town as I'm walking past the homeless like and I love Augustine here he says that bread which you keep belongs to the hungry that coat which you preserve in your wardrobe to the naked those shoes which are rotting in your possession to the shoeless that gold which you have hidden in the ground to the needy wherefore as often as you are able to help others and refuse so often did you wrong them So I want to close with a question, and we'll go to communion. Practicing the way of Jesus together for the life of blank. Who is that for you? And do you have the kind of resilience, the kind of love tank, so to speak, the kind of love capacity to be formed in the kind of person that could be a true neighbor to them? That's our calling. That's the tension of eternal life. 
And that's the goal of formation. We're going to take a moment and come to communion. And again, I want us to be reminded, this is not about heaping guilt and shame on you. This is about remembering that all of this stuff is made possible because Jesus is the Good Samaritan. We oftentimes want to put ourselves in the story as the Good Samaritan. We are the man on the side of the road. Broken, beaten, bloody, needy. Jesus comes as a Good Samaritan, and he does what the religious leaders would not do. He becomes our neighbor. He pulls off to the side of the road. He picks us up, puts us on his animal, pays for us essentially with his life, risk his own body and blood so that we could be brought into and shown hospitality in the kingdom of God. Loved us back to life, gave his life for us, rose from the dead, making space for us to flourish as human beings. That is the motivation. And so anytime I'm tempted for me to excuse myself from helping those who are my neighbor, like they don't deserve it, okay, I didn't deserve it, right? They're not the kind of people who deserve mercy. I'm not the kind of person who deserves mercy, right? Any excuse I have, it goes away. It melts in the face of what Jesus has done for me. And that's the thing that fuels a life of love. Not try harder, not, you know, be a civil person and try to be nice to people. It's only in seeing that we are to love others as God himself has loved us. That is the template, that is the pattern, that is the power that God has placed in us to become a people of love. And that's what we celebrate in communion. So if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to come receive the cup, receive the bread as a reminder that God loves you, he's with you, he is for you, and he will empower you for these good works, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbors yourself. It is the goal of Christianity. It is the vision of formation. And so come and be reminded that that only happens as we're united by faith in Jesus. And so I'm going to pray for us. The way we do practice that here at some, we have stations in the front, stations in the back. You come, take a piece of the bread, tear it off, and dip it to the cup, and then return to your seat. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we invite you just to stay in your seat as others come. This is a family meal for those who are followers of Jesus. So we're so glad that you're here, but let's do that as his disciples. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for this invitation to live fully and freely into your kingdom of love. Help us, God, to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to truly love others as we love ourselves. Help us not to be selfish with our practice of spirituality, only thinking about our own growth, our own well-being, our own, and, and people like us. But give us a vision, God. Give us a horizon for the world to see that you have called us to be your ambassadors, your agents of reconciliation in a world to fill the world, as you say in Corinthians, with the aroma of Jesus as we go out and we embody the kingdom of God to our friends, our neighbors, and especially to our enemies. We pray this in Jesus' name.